Hi there, it's Joe. I am the composer of the theme that you hear at the top and tail of every episode and all the other music throughout the show. Sarah's given me special permission to use a mic, yay, and let you know that my debut album is out. It's called Nobody Joins a Cult and it's available via Bandcamp, Spotify, Apple Music, most places that you find your music. It's an instrumental album, kind of post-rock, built from all the music I've made for the show over the past few years. I'd be honoured if you'd check it out and spread the word if you enjoy it. Just search up Joe Gould, that's J-O-E-G-O-U-L-D, Nobody Joins a Cult. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Guinevere Turner was born into the Lyman family and spent much of her childhood living on a farm away from her mother and sister, sleeping communally with the other children in the group. At one point, she was invited into the inner circle and found herself travelling with a caravan to various commune properties. Then one day, she was pulled away from it all. Her mother had left with her boyfriend, F.P., and Guinevere and her sister, Annalie, found themselves in a very different but no less abusive situation. Guinevere wrote about her experiences in her incredible memoir, When the World Didn't End, which is available now. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we get into this episode, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing, related to trauma, emotional abuse, and controlling behaviours. We also discuss sexual abuse this episode, and there's a little coarse language. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. Guinevere Turner's memoir, When the World Didn't End, is a riveting read. She's a fantastic writer, and you may already know Guinevere's work from her screenwriting career. She co-wrote the screenplays for American Psycho and The Notorious Betty Page, has written for The L Word, and also wrote the screenplay for Mary Harron's 2018 film about the women in the Manson family, Charlie Says. I managed to forget to tell her what a fan I am of her screenwriting, but it was a real pleasure to speak with her about her new book. Guinevere and I chatted a couple of weeks ago when the book had just hit the shelves, and it was wonderful to hear about some of the ways she's been combining her writing expertise with helping others who have exited cults. I hope you'll enjoy our interview as much as I did. First up, congratulations on a fantastic book. I was absolutely enthralled, as I'm sure anyone who picks up a copy will be. It's beautifully written and no small thing to have opened up your childhood like this for the world to read. Thank you so much. Well, and thanks for making the time to speak with me today. For those who have yet to get a copy, can you give me a bit of an overview of the Lyman family, which you grew up a part of? So the book is my childhood up until the age of 11 in the Lyman family. And then sort of the, the, the second half of the book is, you know, being a weirdo cult kid and going out into the real world that I was, you know, raised to believe was evil and had, had zero exposure to. Uh, the Lyman family, I would later come to understand, is a cult. So I grew up on compounds, isolated, homeschooled, almost zero exposure to anyone who wasn't us, and traveling among the compounds around the U.S. And they believed, well, as the title kind of tips 
you off to that the world was going to end in 1975 and we're going to be taken to Venus. That didn't happen, obviously. And that's kind of where the book begins, which is hence the title. And it just follows me and my friends slash, you know, cult siblings and my journey through the power structures, but also through the kind of the good sides or the, I don't even know how to describe it. I mean, when people say, you grew up in a cult, like, how was that? I'm like, how was the first 11 years of your life? Do you know what I mean? There's good, there's bad. It's just bigger and sort of more exaggerated in my case. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of what you write about actually sounds quite idealistic. You know, there are many elements in in your early childhood that sound really like there's a lot of camaraderie and a lot of fun, but then there's also mixed in there some some fairly intense experiences that we'll, we'll get onto in a, in a minute. But the, the way of writing it from the perspective of a child, I think, is just such an effective way of placing the reader in the mind of someone who this is just their world and they don't know any difference. So it's it's it reminds me of a couple of other books I've read in the kind of similar area, which is Daniela Mestjanek's Uncultured and Beyond Belief by Jenna Miscavige-Hill, which was about growing up in Scientology. And so I was wondering, I'm someone who has a, an absolutely terrible memory, but I was wondering if you could tell me how difficult it was for you to transport your mind back there. Well, luckily for me, I wrote diaries back then and I so those and I weirdly carried them around with me for 35 years in particular the diary that I had where I was in the family and then suddenly completely unexpectedly was no longer was sent away and this book this this object it's not a book but it's low-key I was like collaborating with my 10-year-old self to write this book because I, I had wrote all this kind of on-the-ground information in, in real time, rather, is what I meant to say. So I write it about it, or I try to touch on it in the author's note of this book, which is that the reason that my memories are so present and that I didn't have to dig is A, because I wrote things down, but B, because I so ferociously preserved those memories because I really, really wanted to go back and I really, I thought I would and I felt I didn't want the world to corrupt me. And so I was keeping track of all the movies we watched on this list called The Lord's List that I grew up with. And I was, you know, reciting people's names and like playing songs for them on my banjo at night and rereading this diary and kind of, you know, preciously adoring like little notes that my friends had left me in in the margins or whatever. So it's like I started the process of ferociously remembering this from the minute I left. And that process kind of trained my brain to always preserve things. But then you can see, even in the book before any of that happens to me, there I have this whole part where I just, I'm so happy in this moment that I just need something. I'm afraid that I will forget it. And so I, I'm like desperately looking around for something to make me remember the moment forever. And I land on this squirrel that's in a tree and I just, just you know, sort of take a photograph of it and, and you know, force myself like with sheer will of everything. I will always remember this. I will always remember this. So I think I've always just been that kind of person where the, the elusive nature of memory and experience and how all these things, there's no way we can possibly remember every single thing that happened to us. And this sort of put me in an existential crisis when I was nine. <laughs> so I'm also just like really deep. I don't know. <laughs> so, you know, the, like the idea, and, and it also probably has a lot to do with the fact that I was moved around a lot and, there was like most people, many people, I don't know about most, have, they have their parents, their siblings, their their friends, uh, their teachers. Like people are keeping track of them. I think I got the sense early on that no one was keeping track and it was kind of my job. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that decision that you made to write it from that perspective as a child, you, you mentioned this a bit in the in the forward as well, I think, about how you weren't really placing any value judgments from your adult lens on it. You were taking people through that experience. Can you tell me a little bit about why you decided to write it in that way? Yes. I decided to really stay in the minute to minute of the story because I 
well, you know, as part of the the preparation for writing this book, of course, I read one million trillion memoirs, um, predominantly memoirs by women, uh, and of course, focused in on memoirs that are were about you know cults or, or you know high control groups of various kinds, and just trying to think of what what works and what elevates it from a tell-all or you know I don't know the kind of thing that people read because they want juicy cult scenarios, you know, and what, what, what makes it literary? What makes it a writer's a, a book written by a writer and not a book written by a cult survivor who's, who's decided to be a writer because I am a writer and that's been my career for decades. And so I, you know, really, really thought about this for a long time. Also side note, I, I recently just was laughing at myself can you call yourself a cult survivor if you beg to stay? <laughs> you know, I, like, I I probably would still be there if I hadn't been forced to leave, which is, it's a good thing that I'm not, but I really, I, I feel like I'm imposter syndrome inside a survivor community. <laughs> but anyway, so I read, for example, I read Tara Westover's Educated, which is, you know, a great book and an incredible story, but I was kind of struck by how much energy she puts into footnotes saying uncle so-and-so remembers this differently. And I may have gotten this wrong. And she's very much writing it from her perspective of being outside of the scenario. And I thought, I thought, was she rushed into writing this book? It took me 45 years, you know, to, to feel like I could have the perspective. And so I thought, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't, I want to, I want to feel more sure footed and I don't want there to be any doubt in the reader's mind that what I'm saying is true. And then I'm like, there's no such thing as truth when you're talking about memory. We know this from, from psychological experiments, from just talking to a friend about a thing that happened to us last week. And so I, I, I finally came to the fact or to the realization that if I'm just telling it from that perspective, that's that. You, that's not a thing anyone can argue with. I'm like, th- what I'm saying essentially to the reader is that this is how I remember it. This is how I experienced it. I am a child. For example, when I first wrote a, a draft and I sent it to my sister, Anna Lee, who's featured heavily in the book, I wrote oh, you know, my, how I understood how her father had died. Her father committed suicide when she was a baby and I was seven and she wrote back to me and or probably talked on the phone. She's like one of the only people I actually talk on the phone with. And she said, that's not how my dad died. It was this, 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 and this. And I'm like, I'm not changing it. That's what I was told. That's what I, that was the legend. That was what, and you know, it's very, you know, in a, a tight knit isolated community word travels fast, but obviously uh, stories get morphed and, you know, embellished or whatever over time. So, so it was more important, not that it was true, but it's what I understood. And there's something really freeing about that because nobody can come for me. I didn't say, this is what happened. I said, this is how I, this is how I experienced what was happening, but it also just felt really right, especially because I had those diaries and because I use them a fair amount in the book. It felt like I needed to live there as much as possible. That said, I was just rereading some of it to myself the other day, trying to figure out what, what I was going to do at a reading. And I can, I can identify like maybe five points in the book where I'm like, no, that's totally your adult self talking. And I'm like, those, I should, that's like, how did I not see? I mean, what you can't see once you're in the weeds of writing a book, as I'm sure you know, is a lot. It's a, yeah, it's a hu- huge undertaking even, yeah. I, I don't think I'll be doing it again. I have to say it was, <laughs> but you're a writer, you're a writer, writer. So I'm sure it came a little bit more easily to you. Um, as you were saying, you know, you actually did really want to go back and there were, were a lot of kind of very enjoyable elements about your childhood in this community, but then, you know, you've got this child's perspective, but as an adult reading this, you're hearing stories that are about 
some pretty intense child labour, dangerous situations with hot stoves and, you know, fingers being chopped off by axes, like harsh punishments, girls being chosen for marriage with men, you know, lack of supervision resulting in further abuses. And so I was wondering what you would say now to outsiders who might have seen you all as perfectly happy children living a free-range kind of a life there. What I would say to anyone who saw us and thought everything was fine Nobody saw us because <laughs> we didn't go to school and we didn't go to doctors and we didn't leave the compounds except to travel among them. So in that regard, we were, there was no one to identify that we're, we were maybe in trouble. And then, but, but that question has kind of a second element, which is then once I'm out of the family and I'm living in this abusive household and don't really see a way out, the more interesting question is what could someone have done for me then? And so for, for listeners who haven't read my book, it's, you know, I just, I, me and my family endured all kinds of violence from the man that my mom left with and that I also dealt with sexual abuse. And I didn't feel like there was a safe, easy way to quote unquote, go to the authorities. And I write about how I was really, I was almost angry at myself because I was so good at seeming like things were fine. And I don't really know the answer because I was really good at it. As the actor in me, the writer in me, I'm like, invent a persona and then be that person and compartmentalize everything. I feel like if I were a teacher, I would be as far into my students' business as I possibly could. <laughs> you know, what are your parents like? What do your parents think of this? What's your home life like? But I think you could have, you know, observed me up close in when I was in school and maybe would have thought that the biggest, my biggest issue first, especially when I first got there was just that I was a little bit odd, but I, I erased that. It took me about two years. I erased that. I went to high school and just never talked about it again. And just, I'm also a Gemini and the year, the Chinese Zodiac sign of the monkey. You know what I mean? Like just we're imitators and we, and we're, and we're, we're quick on our feet. Yeah, I think you even wrote about how you found a book that detailed the behaviours to look out for that might indicate that a child is being a victim of abuse and you knew that you were exhibiting none of those telltale signs. I Yeah, and I almost felt, I don't know that I articulated this, but it just sort of occurred to me when you said that, that I was like, am I in an abusive situation? Like, why don't I have those things? Am I okay with it? And I knew that I wasn't, but I'm like, well, then why am I not vomiting and crying and like, you know, acting out in school and doing bad in school and all those things. And I, I, it's, I just, it's not how I felt. My instinct was to, the, my way of coping with it was, was that I actually had this world where I could pretend it didn't exist. Yeah. And so as you've just mentioned, you came out of the Lyman family and into an abusive family situation, which is really heartbreaking to read about. And I've spoken to many people who, like your mother, left a controlling organisation and went straight into a controlling domestic relationship. In hindsight, does it seem like your mother was replacing the dynamics that were familiar to her in leaving with FP? I think it's interesting how we perceive our parents as, you know, as we go through different decades of our lives. Because, you know, for for the first easily till I was in my twenties, I just thought she was a traitor. I didn't think about her and I thought she was a traitor for leaving the family. And then I thought she was a monster for not protecting me. And I didn't, it took me a minute to see that she was also in a, a, a violent and coercive situation. Like I knew that. And I, it's not that I didn't have empathy for her in moments when he was violent and horrible to her, but I still, it took me a while to, to realize that, that what was happening to her might have prevented her from taking care of me. And then she started, she joined this, this, the Lyman family when she was 19. And she went, you know, from a household where like her father was an abusive alcoholic and her mother told her, if you're pregnant, don't come back here and don't, and you don't ever tell your grandfather. I mean, your father. So yeah, she had this kind of seamless, you know, seamless patriarchy looking like different things. And so I do think that she, she, she didn't understand herself as someone who could 
I mean, maybe, you know, exist without a man or have value without a man. I don't really know because I didn't ever ask her that point blank because she, especially because she was so hesitant to talk about it at all, to talk about the family at all. And then, you know, obviously we had our own problems once we weren't there. So I, I do think that she was sort of in a state of arrested development and it took her a really long time to, to really see herself as it takes us all, you know, in our twenties and thirties, but the, the, repercussions of hers were more extreme, which is to say that her children suffered a lot of abuse. All four of us. Yeah. Yeah. And there's always a a big question around kind of personal responsibility in all of these situations that gets really, really muddy, but I think it's hard to, hard, really hard to think that she didn't step up to protect you in a lot of those situations and in fact blamed you for some of them as well. I'm talking to Sarah Edmondson in this coming week and, you know, she has that from the other side, which is that she, you know, participated in, you know, bringing women into this fold. And I'm very curious to talk to her about that, you know, how one lives with that. And, but more importantly, how, how people treat her, you know, like, because there are people who are just don't, you know, if you do something that looks bad or if you're just the, the henchman of a more powerful leader, there, there's not a lot of empathy there. And there should be in my humble opinion, there should be a lot of empathy there. Yeah, I agree with you. But then I can, yeah, sometimes understand why why it's hard for some people to have that empathy as well, particularly if they were personally impacted. And so you've touched on this a bit already, but you write about spending a lot of your teenage years trying to erase your past, pretending to understand references to old Brady Bunch episodes. And a quote from your book is, being someone else was second nature by now. And I fully inhabited the carefree and busy high school girl I was pretending to be so much so that I believed she was really who I was. Now you've released this book and you've written about your childhood previously as well. But when was it that you reached the point where you felt that you could be honest about your past if you were speaking to someone who you didn't mind sharing it with? Well, what's hilarious, I put hilarious in quotes because I guess a lot of this is pretty dark to a lot of people, is that I had really perfected er erasing the culty part of me. And by the way, I was not using that word until I went to college because, you know, I quickly discovered that, you know, talking about Bing Crosby or any of the number of things, you know, banjo playing, whatever was just like, Oh, I'm so weird. (laughs) Is that once I got to college, I went to Sarah Lawrence college, which for listeners who don't know is a very liberal, very alternative, like liberal arts college here in New York state. This, this school is like the Rolling Stone once, once called it alternative lifestyles of the rich and famous. It's they predominantly very wealthy kids of very wealthy from very wealthy backgrounds. I, of course, not being that, but they're on a scholarship. But there was this kind of competition for who had the most messed up backstory. It's like, oh, my parents were divorced, so like my mom was had an affair with my therapist, and blah, and, and all of a sudden that, that my upbringing that I had so carefully put away as part of my identity was social currency, and I had everyone beat. And it was, it was freeing, but also like kind of my first taste of how to exploit the story in a way that didn't feel emotionally healthy. And my best friend who was, continued to be my best friend until he passed away, but he was my new best friend in college. He would, I would, we would meet new people and he would go, you know, people say, where are you from? Blah, blah, blah. As, and you do that a lot in college, where you're from is, is much more relevant. And he would just nudge me and be like, tell them about the Moonies, tell them about the Moonies. Referring to the, the what is it called the Unification Church Reverend Sun Moon, aka the Moonies, and he because he would just be like, I just want to look at people's faces when when you start telling them all this like crazy way that you grew up. That you know, he's like he knew I had definitely had everyone beat. So it was then, but then I also would you know try to write about it in my fiction writing workshops because that's what I thought I was going to be. For those of you who don't know, I turned out to be a screenwriter and now a memoirist. There has been no fiction of note. I get screenplays. In, sorry, in my fiction writing workshops, I would, was started to try to write about how I grew up and people would 
get so fascinated that the entire workshop would just digress into an entire, basically, you know, one woman show of me talking about my childhood. And I was like, I'm not learning anything. I'm entertaining people, but I'm not honing the craft. And so I, that was my, another first lesson. So first I was like, yay, I have a fascinating subject, even though I'm slightly disassociated from it. And then I wrote about it and then I was like, oh, it's too fascinating for any interactions to be real in a way. So I stopped writing about it. And, th- and that was my first lesson in like, I'm going to have to find the time and space where this feels right uh, and where I feel like it's on my own terms and I'm not doing it for any reason that isn't quite emotionally healthy. Or, I mean, even now, so this book came out of a piece that I wrote in The New Yorker in 2019. And even, you know, then I, some of the scuttlebutt that came down from the family, because, you know, we're all sort of interconnected in, in, out, all the way out, halfway in, was that, you know, I was just, you know, using this to further my career. And I'm like, I'm not going to let that hurt my feelings. To have people who surrounded you with an abusive environment then accuse you of using it to your benefit. I'm like, well, I am a writer. It's not like I just had nothing going on. And then I was like, you know, oh, let me just like drag out this old chestnut and see how much attention I can get. You know, like it wasn't easy. And I'm only at the very beginning of the process of what what exactly it will feel like. So that was, I went all over the place with that answer, but I actually just wanted to tell you something, which is that I became aware of your podcast. So one of the things that I've been doing is you just over my whole life, really my whole adult life is, is just being aware of cults in mainstream, you know, representation of them from all eras and then what they look like in mainstream culture. And then, I mean, what they look like now, contemporary culture is what I meant. And then being aware of media that covers them. And so your podcast was on my radar and I had just heard about, someone had just pointed me toward Yanya Lalich, who, for those who don't know, has been on Sarah's show and is a, a, a cult expert I guess is what, you know, one of her many titles are. And I wanted to listen in particular because I, because in my exploration for, you know, support and for also because I knew this book was coming out and I wanted a place to point people to. And I saw that you had Yanya on and listened to it. And Yanya and I are now friends and I've like taught, you know, with her center and stuff. But I wanted to see if I had an intuition of trusting her because as I'm sure you know, the cult recovery space is also horrifically a space for exploitation and abuse. And I did not want to be, I was really doing my homework because I did not want to be someone who pointed people in a direction that was just going to replicate what they were trying to get away from and heal from. And so thank you because listening to Yanya, I was like, I just, in the core of my being, I'm like, yes, this woman is for real and she's talking about it in a way that I connect with. And that sounds genuinely, and she also is a survivor herself that that I was like, I, I feel like I can trust. Yeah, she is. She's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. I think she was one of the first people I read on the subject myself and yeah, I agree with you. And she was, I, I waited a while for that interview to happen. She was going through a rough time. I think we had to cancel it about six times. And I was like, this is probably the one person in the world that I would just wait as many times as it takes because I was so keen to speak with her and she is absolutely fantastic. And I, yeah, I hope to meet her in person one day as well. Me too. I actually only met her on Zoom because she's on the East, West Coast and I'm on the East Coast. <laughs> well, it's great that you've been doing some work with her as well. That's that's awesome. You you mentioned the 2019 New Yorker article that you wrote, and I I just wanted to read a quick quote from that article as well if that's okay, where you said, yeah, you tell people who haven't heard of the Lyman family, if you haven't heard of a cult, it's because it didn't go down in flames. Its members are just quietly doing what they do, which means that there are many more active cults today than we are aware of. And I couldn't agree with you more. (laughs) Since starting the podcast, it's become so apparent to me that this is the case and that we should be much more aware of coercive groups that aren't about to garner sensational headlines, but are still controlling the lives of their members in, you know, very damaging ways. So I was just wondering that as someone with direct experience, do you think that there's more that we could be doing to protect people? I do. 
it's something I've talked with Yanya about a lot too, because it's kind of part of her work and has been, I think for a long time, actually changing laws around coercion and high control groups in the way that domestic violence awareness with the, with the legal system has really radically improved over the last couple of decades, but not so much with coercive control. She writes about it beautifully and articulately in for the lay person who isn't just all culted up like we are. And I think that, I think that she, that one of the ways that we could, that there could be more support for, for people coming out of cults is specifically having, you know, honing the coercion laws so that if your wife, for example, and this is a Yanya example, all of a sudden is, you know, is giving all your money to a guru and making weird choices and making weird choices for your children. If you go to the police with that, they will say that she's an adult, you know, that's her money or that's, you know, legally it's both of your money or whatever. And that's that. That's the end. As this woman gets more and more sucked into this thing and her husband is looking at her like, I- I'm losing you, I'm losing you, and there's nothing I can do legally. Um, or even, and, and and again, something that Yana is working on is is training mental health people to to be more sensitive to issues. Like for, So for example, I taught, I wouldn't even say taught, I led a writing workshop for five of the women in Yanya's, you know, support kind of network that I met through the the discussion groups. And what I love about, I, I feel like I'm doing an ad for the Lalich Center, but I really like, it's been such a revelation to me that all of the things they do and just the relationships I've formed, they distinguish in their groups between people who are survivors in the sense that they joined a cult and got out and us kids who are the ones who were born and raised. And interestingly, it's when I first joined the Lollard Center, I, I was just in a general, you know, discussion group, support group. And I thought to myself, I don't want to be in a support group of these fools who joined cults. Like those are our parents. Like those are the people who are responsible. You know, the, that mindset is who's responsible for, you know, our childhoods that we had no control over and are constantly, continually, and will forever be recovering from. And then I was like, I'm being an a-hole right now. Like I do, I do have empathy, of course, for those people, but they are different people than we are in terms of their relationship to all of this and not in a way, because, you know, there are certain things that are just, you know, deeply and simply true about all of us. And so the, the, the long and the short of it is that I think we need better legal things in place, mental health. Oh, so when I was teaching the workshop, that's what I was going to say, leading this workshop with these women like me who are raised in these environments, but all of them much more recently out and even 10, 20 years is more recently than I, than my experience. They, like one woman told me that a therapist said to her that you should, you know, start, you know, writing things down, start journaling, start talking about your experience to yourself or actually just whatever you're thinking about. And she was overwhelmed because for a lot of us, writing was a thing that was used when we were kids that we had to do as a way to sort of regurgitate doctrine and, you know, as as part of a a training process, basically. And so writing, for for this one woman in particular, she's like, writing is really triggering for me. Her dad was the leader of of the organization that she was in, and she just remembers like all the pressure to write almost daily, but stuff that wasn't, you know, organic or creative or anything. It was something you, you know, like a performance almost. And so that's just one little example of how mental health can be more sensitive to what there's probably like top five things that are probably someone who grew up in a cult should, you should dance, you should tread lightly with. And that's one of them. For me, I I had been looking for a, a cult related there, a cult savvy is not the word, Cults trained is too ambitious or too, too, too optimistic to think exists. I've been looking for anything, support group, anything. And it's, it's what I call the, one of the silver linings of COVID is that, you know, suddenly this, this discussion group from, from the Lalit Center is an international group and it's on Zoom and everybody's, you know, able to come in through different time zones and schedules. And it blew me away. Because I thought, you know, I, I have to go. I don't know. I'm, I'm not much of a, like, therapy-minded person. But I'm like, I must go and just see what this feels like. 
And I've never felt so at home in my life in a room full of strangers, a Zoom room, but you know what I mean? And so that was the first time I ever felt that I was doing something in, in the way of my sort of mental health that was working because, and all, it was so simple. It's just people who knew what I'm talking about and who were saying things that I like only someone who grew up like us could, that the very basic human thing of being in conversation with people who get at a granular level, like what you're dealing with. Well, I was just sobbing, you know, like trying to hide it from the camera, but just like, and, but the other thing is because we all are, we are every, like n- almost anyone in, in any given sport group. And early on, it was like 20 people would cry at some point, but also laugh. And it was all, it all just felt really safe and really, really quite lovely. So I, I, I wish that I didn't do what I do because I would, I can also see myself just creating programs, working, and I am working with a Lollard Center to create things that support the, the support people who are out of cults in ways that are specific and informed. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And I think in a lot of our societies, we've kind of decided to not do an awful lot about these groups and even where coercive control laws have come into place, they seem to still only be focused on domestic abuse, one-on-one relationships. I think those laws should should be expanded. But also if if we've just all of us decided that this is in the too hard basket, then we need to do so much more for people who are exiting and provide ways to help them reintegrate into society and, you know, resources that are going to be useful for them. So I just, I think that that's so important. And it's something I've heard again and again, that finding a therapist who really can help because they understand the the elements at play is really difficult. So yeah, the work that's being done on training therapists is, that's so wonderful to see. I know that the Lalich Centre has been working on that. And, and also it just occurred to me as, a, as you were talking that training people who are survivors to become those therapists is, is, you know, a great, would be a great pipeline, especially because so many people who come out of cults are undereducated and underemployed and not sure what the heck to do while they're also kind of falling apart and just trying to manage daily life. And I feel, you know, I felt that's why I felt so equipped to teach this workshop because I just kind of instinctively had this really basic kind of understanding that these women first and foremost needed to just reclaim writing and what that even would look like. I mean, I also do teach screenwriting, so it wasn't totally out of nowhere. But another aspect of that that I'm really interested in and I'm curious to hear what you think is the proliferation of cult-related media, of which you are part. But the podcasts feel, well, not all of them, but the podcasts feel different. Like you feel like someone who's genuinely concerned and all these ways that are helpful to the survivor community. But when we look at the documentaries and the sort of explosion of documentaries over the last, I don't know, I think I've sort of really kicked off with wild, wild country. Right. And who are they for? I've been really trying to, I, I, I just, I'm, I'm workshopping with you again, because I'm sure you have thoughts on this because my, my thinking is that, okay, so for example, the, this documentary, several documentaries just came out about the, you know, the Sarah Lawrence cult, which is, by the way, the school that I went to. And, you know, the, the most recent one, also the, the most popular one, the filmmakers said that they were really, really trying to focus on the survivors and not so much the, the, the bad guy, the monster. And they did, you know, it's really structured around interviews with them and they're then focusing on their experience. But it's still showing us videos like over and over of, you know, like, a, for example, a, like one kid like slapping himself to get his sister to stop doing something like, you know, the, the this evil dude, you know, grabbing a kid's tongue with a, pliers and they're showing that. And it still feels like suffering for entertainment. And it's not like. The Inconvenient Truth, for example. There's a documentary that galvanized people to do something, myself included. I sold my 1978 Prius and, I mean, Mercedes and bought a Prius. Um, And obviously when you see a documentary about cults, no matter how well done it is or how sympathetic, it's hard to know exactly what to do. Like just not buy a gas guzzling car. But I do feel like I'm still kind of processing what's harmful 
and you know and how harmful it is to make these things for people to continue to feel like that could never be me because that's that's one of the things that feels like it underlines but then and also like why are cults in the true crime you know it's, it's a subset of true crime you know like to be in a cult to have a cult is not a crime in and of itself it's just that the ones we know about have committed crimes so there's just a lot to unpack there and i i don't know i'm still thinking about it and i'm still thinking about what would a useful uh, or i don't know ethical documentary look like and would anyone watch it if, it, if you called it that and and finally kind of i don't know what 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 do we what do we do with all of it i wrote a book about a cult you have a podcast about a cult we know that many many people who don't care to kind of get into an empathy space are going to absorb what we're putting out in the world and is that okay and then in these discussion groups one a thing i heard from more than one person is and again silver lining of covid a lot of people that was the first step for them to get out of the situation they were in because they saw because they were taken away from the constant busyness and groups and doctrine and you know the, all the busy work that is sort of the, one of the many hallmarks of of keeping people in coercive situations and so and you know one person said he, that he was watching wild wild country and was like oh 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 i might be in a cult similarly nexium so in actual fact on this tiny scale it is literally helping people but is it helping in a collective consciousness kind of way no i oh i just yeah so much of what you said really gels with me and i totally agree and i'm in really two minds about a lot of it because i think so many of these documentaries they're really for reasons that that's what sells, right? They're focusing on the sensationalist stories and when things go up in flames, exactly like you said in your article. And so you've got people who think that that is what cults are, but it's not, how do you, how do you, yeah, how do you make a, a documentary that portrays that there are a lot of people kind of entrapped in these situations, which are totally flying under the radar. They're still just as controlling of their lives. The dynamic is such that there is a chance, like you mentioned, that you believe that if the circumstances had been different, there's a possibility that your that the Lyman family would have followed instructions to all like mass suicide or something like that. So there are those dynamics at play that, but these are only we're seeing these really extreme ends of these organizations. You know, I'm, I'm interested in making that ethical documentary as well. How do you do that? That's what I think is good about the doing a podcast. It's long, it's long form. You can do episodes as long as they run. You don't have to condense the interviews to little sound bites that are, whatever fit the story well and hopefully it's portraying that yes you've got this ranch davidian situation but then you've also got this other group over here that you know what they're doing is stopping girls from getting an education beyond the age of something really young and putting them in these heavily patriarchal situations and giving them no options in life than to procreate for the group or whatever so yeah, but how do you <laughs> how do you pitch that documentary to get anyone interested in making it? Because everybody wants the sensational story as well. Yeah, like, yeah, you have fun making that school teachery kind of dry finger wagging piece of media that nobody wants to watch because nobody wants to feel like they're being preached at. You know, that's not entertainment. You know, like nobody wants to think that they're sitting down. Well, very few people want to, you know, get their popcorn and think that they're sitting down to something educational. That's what YouTube is for. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there was something on the edge of my mind I was going to say about that as well, but I can't, I can't quite remember what it was. It might come back to me. I get so frothy about all of it that I just, I get like panicky about what, how much, like, I, I'm like, well, but there's this idea and then there's this idea and there's this idea and there's so little of it that's been sort of like formalized and made coherent just in general in the discourse about cults that I just feel like everybody needs to know all these things and think about it in all these different ways. Yeah, I, I'm, I can't wait for the Lala. I want the Lala Center to be an actual place is part of my, my wish list for this decade. Yes, absolutely. And I would come and visit. I, I actually, I did remember it was you, t- you touched on people thinking that they would never join a group like that. And it, th- these documentaries kind of help them to think that that's the case. And it's, 
I guess a real motivation in the podcast as well has become to kind of make people realize that there's there's a cult for every single one of us. It's if you don't think that you would join one, you just haven't come across the one that you would have joined had you been at a certain point in your life and come across that group. Or of course, had you been born in and never had that choice in the first place. So the idea that, you know, oh, I would never join, like it totally discounts the experience of someone like you who never chose to join and still had that experience. Never chose to join, beg to stay. Not, it's not a sympathetic story. It's not, as, it's not as juicy as some, you know. I do think that part of the, you know, in the conversation about who joins and why, that another thing that could help all of us as if people realize that a person who has recently had a loss, you know, or is in a grief state or vulnerable state because of a divorce or breakup or, you know, some big life event that is making them feel like they're, you know, they're the search for meaning that, that we should all understand that they're cult vulnerable. And, and especially if you have people in your life who are in general spiritual seekers, lovely. We should all be that. We should all find the system that of beliefs or the world that, that makes us kind of be able to make sense of this sort of daily life of human suffering. But those people are also incredibly uh, vulnerable to cults because the thing about those the, the leaders and the, and the leaders sort of hench people in those scenarios is that they can spot that a mile away. They can smell it. And that's who they're after is the, is the seeker, the lost one, the one who maybe has a lot of money, but not a lot of family, et cetera. And so that it, like, as we in the collective consciousness could know that, you know, the, those, the, your lovely aunt who is always talking about the, her latest kind of new healing thing, whatever, like watch, be careful, like look out for her because she's, she is a, she's a beautiful baby fawn to the, to a, you know, a uh, mother, mother, I'm going to try, I'm going to try to finish that. She's a beautiful baby Vaughn to a jungle cat. <laughs> the jungle cat being the cult leader. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely right. I don't, I don't want to keep you too much longer. I'm sure you have a day to get on with, but I, coming back to your book, while this is of course your story, I have so many questions about how many of the people you wrote about are doing today. And I wondered if you were able to tell me how your sister is doing and how Clotilde is doing. My sister, both of them, for those who haven't read the book, my youngest sister is just is a baby in the story. But my sister, Annalie, who the book is also dedicated to, is doing great. She, she found her father's family when she was in her 20s and so has kind of reconnected with a sister that she never knew and, you know, just kind of seeing that side of who she is, I think, which was a huge thing for her. And she was a huge part of, you know, helping me when I was writing this book just by being there and laughing about it when it's not always so funny, but also kind of the only person in my life who really understands what we went through, even though obviously she's a lot younger than me, only seven years now, which makes no difference when you're forties and fifties. But when we were kids, obviously it made a huge difference. So she's really good. She's really good. And she's, you know, she just came to my first book launch party and, and was, you know, helping me, has been helping me, you know, to, I don't know. I'm just like, what do you think about this book cover and whatever? She's just, she's been very much there every step of the way. Clotilde is also, she's one of the only women that I grew up with who is cut and dried, not part of the family. She's married. She has four kids. Uh, she wasn't able to come to my book launch here in New York last week, but her 19-year-old daughter did, which was kind of incredible and sweet. And she, Clotilde is my friend. She's read the book. I was already friends with her before I wrote the book. And so when I was writing, I said, you know, do you want me to change your name? It's so very specific. I mean, it's unique, her name. I've never met another Clotilde or even heard of another Clotilde. And she said, no, not at all. She's like, you know, I, I, everyone in my life who I care about knows where I come from and fuck everybody else is what she said. <laughs> and so that was kind of great. And I, I did, I did change names of some people. For, for various reasons after talking to the legal department of my publisher. But the, the for example, the woman who's called Samantha, 
in my book, I, that is a, that is a, a pseudonym because I got in touch with her and I said, and I hadn't talked to her since I was 11, except, you know, a little bit on Facebook. Like we were, we were friendly and I just said, you know, this is the book and I'm writing about these certain things. Do you want me to change your name? And if you do, what do you want me to call you? I feel like if you're going to change people's names, it's nice if they're people you like to give them a chance to name their, their, their alter ego in your book. And she said something that, that kind of rattled me, but it was, it's too late. She said she's for herself. She works in early education and she just said, I don't, you know, I don't want it to be weird for my job. You know, it's like, I just, yes, please, please change my name. And then, but she said, you know, a lot of us, us meaning like my generation of women, I always want to say girls, but you know, we're in our fifties, um, are, are really, really stressed out about this book because specifically because they haven't told their kids much about how we grew up. And I'm like, oh, I, I can't believe I never really thought about how this might affect some people because it didn't occur to me that you would have, I don't have kids. So I don't think about these things in the way that I might in other arenas be more empathetic. It never occurred to me that they wouldn't be totally transparent, but who knows? Your kid's a teenager. It's a lot. It's a lot, but obviously they're going to know. Uh, so that's, that's a, a sort of a stress point that I have yet to really confront because the book's only been out for five or six days of if I'm ruining the lives of people that, uh, you know, cause a lot of the spirit of this book comes from wanting to tell my story as a way of telling all of our stories or shining some light on it. At least obviously I'm only telling my point of view because no one has written about it. Like literally no one has ever spoken publicly or written about it, which to me is both daunting and like, what, why, like, why? I, what do I have to lose? I have a lot to lose. And it's this very kind of primal thing of like not wanting to be in trouble with the people who raised me. But it, it but I, I, I sort of, it pains me a little bit to think that it's going to cause stress and anxiety in people's lives. And it makes me hope that it, what it does is cause honest conversations and, and, you know, sort of open communication about this, like extremely, well, I was going to say extremely unique in the context of talking to you and of the support groups that I'm in. It's not that unique, but it's very unique to most people. And I think there's a really strong chance that that is what it will do. I mean, I, you know, I can totally understand how that would be. Yeah. Really a, a bit of a stressor for sure. And I can identify with that feeling in a lot of ways, but I am, yeah, I'm a notorious oversharer and my, <laughs> my will is always to over talk about everything, even if it's something traumatic and horrible. And yeah, mm. I hope those honest conversations are what comes out of it as well. And I think, yeah, you being able to write about your own experiences and, and dig into your own childhood. I mean, of course you have every right to do that and you've done just such a, a beautiful job of it too. And I, yeah, I, I think many readers will want to know, and you sort of touched on coming around to having an amount of empathy for your mother and everything she went through, but w did you ever manage to have a, a different relationship with her after everything you went through as a result of her decisions? It's been, uh, my relationship with my mother has been kind of all over the place over the years. I, I kind of, came back into an empathy space once I was in college, or I should say back into one. I came into one. I kind of never really knew her or then just really hated her without even really knowing her. And then over the course of the decades, uh, I've just been frustrated with her. So we're, we're like civil to each other, but we don't talk all the time, but I probably wouldn't talk to her at all, but we have, I don't want to, I'm not here to try to create more weird rifts and division in the family. So I try to keep it all, I don't know, just civil and mature and present and not trying to mostly just trying to make my relationships with my siblings have nothing to do with our parents. And, you know, my mom is probably reading the book as we speak. So we'll see. I think probably it's a huge source of anxiety for her because, you know, she doesn't come off well, but I wasn't lying. I did, I'm, I'll be honest. It gives me a little bit of anxiety because I also 
as much as, you know, she's a problematic figure in my life. I, I didn't write any of this to cause anyone harm, but then I thought, you know, you can't, you can't, if the truth is hard and you have to tell it, like it's the truth can be hard for people who don't look that good in the, in it historically. Yeah. If you talk to me in another week, I would be, I would be full of a whole different perspective on this person freaked out on me. This person was surprisingly, you know, accepting this person told me about how it affected their lives. I mean, I, I just got an email yesterday from a woman who I don't know who said that she knew the Lemon family and was very associated with them for a period of time. But then all of a sudden things got very weird and she's like, I wish they would all go to jail. I'm so glad you're writing about this. It's really helping me understand what all of that was about. She was just their neighbor who got her and her, her daughter got engaged with them. And I was like, Oh no, is this the beginning of people being like F the Lyman family? Like this is what they did to me that. And, but it is like, it's like, I feel like I'm creating this kind of hub slash sort of what, what's the word I'm looking for? Like this, like a, a place where people are going to connect on this and maybe, and I, I really want good to come of it. I really do. I really want people to feel empowered to write about their own experiences. And I want the women I grew up with to feel, to have a new perspective if they don't already, and to be able to openly talk about it with the people in their lives in a way that isn't about, it's not even, I don't think about shame for any of us. It's like, we really just, it's just so deeply embedded in us not to betray these people. And and if telling your story, your, your truth I mean, that's, I think Oprah made us all start talking like that. If telling your truth is a betrayal, then there's something wrong with whatever that dynamic is, you know? That's, yeah, beautifully put. And I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think on that note, before I go on to let everyone know how to get their hands on your wonderful book, is there anything else that we haven't covered that you'd like to talk about? No, I think I... I think the thing that I always want to talk about is is Yanya, the Lalage Center. Why do we have cult documentaries, and how am, do I do I actually count as a survivor if I if I beg to stay? <laughs> Those are all the kind of things that I don't won't necessarily come into conversation unless I bring them in. But I'm passionate slash amused by all of those things, so we did cover them. It's yeah, it's interesting you say that you feel that you may still well have been there had you not been kind of pulled out of it by the family situation. But, you know, it's hard to say whether that's true or not. And I, like any person I ever speak to who has been in a cult, I I go over that in my mind. Like, had I been in their situation, would I have been able to pull, pull myself out of that? I have no idea. Would I, would I be stuck there and kind of, you know, maybe just going along? Quite possibly. That, it's something that I thought about a lot when I was writing my most recent film, Charlie Says. It, it was in 2019 because it's about the women who killed for Charles Manson and I, you know, they, those women were so vilified and they sort of represent like the old society's ultimate monsters decades and decades later. And I was really going into an empathy space with them so much that sometimes I had to reel myself in and remind myself that they did violently, brutally murder strangers. But one of the things I thought a lot about was if I was 19 in 1968, like my mother was when she joined a cult, like these women were around that time and, and around that age, who would I be? Because much like now in a very different way, there seems to be a kind of cultural revolution happening where people are kind of going to extreme places and seeking, seeking answers and things just are, things are in such flux and feel like they're going in such a dangerous direction that we are all kind of vulnerable to any, anything alternative to this. And back then it was, you know, the ultimate time of, of the cultural revolution. And I, instinctively know that I would not have just, you know, put on a suit and gotten a a corporate job in 1968. I know that I would have gone on whatever drug and hitchhiking and, you know, alternative living path. And so who knows, you know, I, I know that I probably would have put myself, put myself in incredibly dangerous situations in the name of revolution. So yeah. And in that way, I don't, I, I never, I, I, that's another thing about my mother. I can never judge too harshly because time and place is so much about, you know, a lot of why people joined cults back then and, and why people are doing that today. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you today, Guinevere. Thank you so much for your time and for your wonderful book. And I wish you so much luck with it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and also for having an ethical podcast about cults. Huge thanks to Guinevere Turner for speaking with me for this episode. When the World Didn't End is available now through Amazon and many other book retailers in hard copy, ebook, and audiobook formats. You can find the links to buy this captivating memoir in the show notes. You can access early and ad free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon, patreon.com/ltaspod, or with a one-off donation or merch purchase. You can also grab a copy of my book, Do As I Say. That link's in the show notes too. This episode of Let's Talk About Sects was written and produced by me, Sarah Steele. Music was by Joe Gould. Information sources are also listed on the episode page at ltaspod.com. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult or would like to support those who have been, you can find support with or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via cifs.org.au. And you can find resources outside of Australia at icsahome.com and the Lalich Centre. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention website at iasp.info. Thanks for joining me and hope to catch you again next episode. Hi there. It's Joe. I am the composer of the theme that you hear at the top and tail of every episode and all the other music throughout the show. Sarah's given me special permission to use a mic, yay, and let you know that my debut album is out. It's called Nobody Joins a Cult, and it's available via Bandcamp, Spotify, Apple Music, most places that you find your music. It's an instrumental album, kind of post-rock, built from all the music I've made for the show over the past few years. I'd be honoured if you'd check it out and spread the word if you enjoy it. Just search up Joe Gould, that's J-O-E-G-O-U-L-D, Nobody Joins a Cult.